The following content has been rated for mature audiences only. Viewer discretion is advised. Well, I'm not an expert. I'm not an authority. I'm someone who has been a murderer for almost 20 years. Maybe I should have killed four or five hundred people, then I would have felt better. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. There must be something in that. I showed emotion. You know what people said? See, you really can get violent and angry. Welcome to The Squawk and the Hag, a podcast about murder, mystery, the supernatural, and even a conspiracy or two. Dun, dun, dun. My name is Mo. And I'm Kraken. So it's October, which means we talk about the scary things that hide in the shadows. Ghosts, skeletons, demons, they often become the focus of the season. But in this episode we're going to focus on one of the scariest monsters to roam the United States, a cannibalistic serial killer hiding in plain sight. Jeffrey Dahmer was intelligent, articulate, and many considered him to be good looking. He didn't look like a scary monster, but he was far more terrifying. Hidden away in a small Milwaukee apartment, he did unimaginable things for years on end. There's a lot of focus and talk right now with the recent Netflix releases, and with a killer as notorious as Jeffrey Dahmer, there's a lot of information out there. Some of it fact, some not. So this week, let's dive into the truth and maybe discover some odd facts along the way. I love... (laughs) There it is. I was waiting for one of those. I absolutely love the adaptation that was recently released, but it is a dramatization for entertainment purposes. And when I watched it, that's how I treated it. However, I became much more enthralled with a documentary that followed up called Conversations with a Killer, the Jeffrey Dahmer tapes. Netflix had previously released the Bundy tapes and the Gacy tapes. This documentary about the Dahmer tapes is actual audio from over 32 hours of tapes recorded by one of his lawyers named Wendy Patricus. Additionally, I downloaded the official police documents of his interviews and confessions, all 243 pages of them. You had a lot of information to, to, to dig into. That sounds, that sounds like fun. Strap in, because it's going to be a wild ride. <laughs> yes, as someone who's two episodes into the, the Dahmer show on Netflix. Uh, yeah, uh-huh. That's, well, that's an understatement. I will say, that show is really good. It's really well done, and it is pretty accurate. I would say 90%, 95% accurate. Yeah, but I mean, it's close enough that it's like, it happened like this to a certain extent. Yeah, it's scary. You watch it and you're like, I'm watching a movie. And then you're like, I am not watching a movie. This is real. Someone did these things. As a child, his parents often fought and he spent a lot of time in a small shed at the family home. He started out by collecting and displaying large insects. I I know when I was a kid in science class, we had to do a bug collection where you like pin them in, you display them. He then evolved into collecting roadkill and removing the flesh, bleaching the bones. This is actually something his father taught him because his father was a chemist. And when Jeffrey asked about it, his dad thought it was just a scientific curiosity. Now, he did not kill any of the animals. 
He simply collected them after death. Still a little gross, but at least he wasn't. That that part, that that part I was a little kind of like, eh, about in the show, because I was like, yeah, it's it's creepy and gross going and picking up roadkill, but I mean, they're they're technically doing it for like biology and the animal is already dead. So, I mean, it's bad, but is it that bad? See, I don't think it's bad. It's weird. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, it's just weird. Like, it's not bad. It's different. Yeah. But I mean, that's how you want to learn about biology, then go right ahead. Exactly, exactly. And I know we've talked about the McDonald triad before, where uh, one of the signs of a serial killer or a psychopath or somebody of a deviant personality is often harming animals as a child. And he didn't. He just did some weird things to their bodies after they died. As early as first grade, he completely isolated himself and instead reverted to fantasy worlds. Some of his teachers said he was shy, but others actually showed concern and told his parents. He, throughout his life, had issues with abandonment and feelings of loneliness. And some psychologists, psychiatrists, and, you know, members of the public think that this did factor into his ultimately horrible behavior. But he repeatedly stated that it was nothing his parents did or did not do, and he took sole responsibility for everything. He honestly had said on many occasions that he was just evil. Sounds like it. Yeah, you could consider that, but I do believe that there was some psychological aspects to it possibly genetic possibly chemical based and things like that but it wasn't just that he was evil like there had there was something behind it and if you look at some of the history with his family and some of the things that happened that we'll go over i don't justify what he did i never justify what these people do but yeah, no unlike when we talked about the chessboard killer, he had very few things in his life that kind of added up to what he did other than a head injury. Whereas with Dahmer, you can look through the timeline and say, oh, okay. So I figured we'd start out kind of going over the well-known facts, the things that a lot of people know of, the things that the adaptation series cover, things that a lot of the documentaries cover. In the early hours of July 23rd, 1991, Jeffrey Dahmer was arrested in his Milwaukee apartment after Tracy Edwards flagged down police wearing just a pair of boxer shorts and a handcuff on one wrist. Soon the story tumbled out about a man in a nearby apartment who threatened him with a knife. The details were outrageous, and the police only half believed him, but he wanted the handcuff off of his wrist. The device was different than the police issued cuffs, so their key wouldn't work. They needed the key from this pair of handcuffs, so they took Edwards back to apartment number 213 of the Oxford Apartments on North 25th Street. I don't know about you, but um, I would not be very eager to go back. He was not. Understandable, yeah, uh uh-huh. While police were in the apartment, they noticed a stack of Polaroid pictures, and at closer look, the pictures were of dismembered bodies. 
this now we have reason to be alarmed now we have even more to be alarmed this is what led to them holding him and searching the apartment they now had probable cause and they started looking around and this was just the start of one of the most shocking and grisly investigations in the history of the city of milwaukee Dahmer had a collection of bones some of which were even entire skeletons, as well as 11 human skulls. In the refrigerator was an intact human head, along with other body parts in Ziploc bags and Tupperware containers, jars, Lovely. knives, saws, hammers, and power tools were collected and cataloged as the devices that he used to dismember his victims. I'm guessing he wasn't using those power tools to open beer cans. Hey, I didn't hurt myself, okay? But the fact that you tried. In the bedroom was a large plastic drum, which when shaken had some sort of liquid or sludge inside. And due to the rest of the scene, the police were I wrote that they were hesitant to open it. No, they just refused. They refused to open it with concerns that it could be hazardous material. You know, it could be biological. It could be chemical. It could, you know, they had no idea what was in this giant drum. They brought the hazmat team in and that team sealed and removed the container to be opened elsewhere in a safe environment. At that time, when it was opened, They found pieces of multiple victims inside a chemical solution that was used to remove the flesh from the bone. I know one of the ingredients was muriatic acid. I also have seen that he did some stuff with hydrochloric acid. Once the bones were clean, he would flush the solution down the toilet and then just keep the bones. Lovely, because that's, there's the whole topic of saving souvenirs again. Dahmer did more than just look at his trophies. Mm -hmm. I guess the delicate way to put it is he pleasured himself to his trophies. The the delicate way to put it is still still not not, not that great. No. No, it's not. No. We talked about how he did not exhibit the items of the McDonald triad. Unlike most serial killers, the actual murder was his least favorite part of the process as well. To him, he stated it was simply a means to an end. He just wanted someone completely submissive to him. Someone that would never leave, never have opinions or choices. He just wanted an object of pleasure. He did attempt relationships with living, breathing men, but he said they talked too much and always left him. Uh, I'm, I mean, uh, okay. I mean, fair. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm married. I can say they talk too much. However. People in general talk too much, but you know, that doesn't mean I'm going to prefer dead people. He wanted to completely control someone that he found attractive and then keep them with him always. This is his whole goal and everything. He tried to get what he wanted without killing, and it didn't go well. But he wasn't 
at the compulsion to just kill. He was at the compulsion to get basically the slave. And the only way he found that worked for him, apparently, was to kill them, which is messed up. Yes, yes, it is. Once he was arrested, he talked very openly with police. Detectives Dennis Murphy and Pat Kennedy were the two investigators that primarily interviewed him. And when Murphy first met him, Dahmer said straight to his face, looking him in the eye, why don't you just shoot me now for what I did? Fair enough. All right. That's a response. Well, how do you reply to that? Because cops aren't allowed to just shoot people in an interview room. I, I don't, just... I, I mean, if I was one of the police officers, I would have just not responded and just kind of, you know, got up and left the room. That first interview started at 1.30 in the morning because he was arrested in the middle of the night. They found Tracy Edwards at, I think it was 11.45 p.m. So then till they went to the apartment, they then found everything they pulled everybody in. They actually took Dahmer down to the station. They didn't get to do the first interview until 1.30 a.m., which is actually pretty quick if you think about all the stuff that happened in that time frame. Yeah, with, with everything they found, too. I'm sure that's a lot of paperwork. 243 I, pages. Yeah, can you imagine how the police felt whenever they had to write up this report? Lord. Well, it was actually interesting. So there were quite a few pages where they actually the initial interview and confession, they had the handwritten report and then the typed version. So there was duplication of some information, but when they were in that interview room, they had to write stuff down. Oh, yeah, there's a lot. And like, how do you even process that? I can't imagine sitting across the table from someone. And when he talked about everything, he talked basically like you and I talk all the time. And as he was describing what he did. As he was describing what he did, it was just like a normal conversation. Yeah, if I was, I would not have been able to be professional in in that situation. I would have just been like, hold up, you did what? I know, right? The interview started at 1.30. It did not end until 7.15 a.m. Once the interview and the confession were finalized, signed off, everything was good. You know, he had to sign that he was read his rights. He had to sign off that this confession was in fact his. The detective asked if he was hungry and he said he wasn't. He said he wasn't going to be hungry for a while. But he requested that they stay and talk more. He wanted to, and this is a quote, have a couple cigarettes, some coffee, and think about what had occurred. I would have just been like, um, uh, thanks, but no, no thanks. Well, actually, it's a good thing they didn't do that because that's when he continued going into all of the horrible things he did in more detail. So they... Oh, wonderful. Yeah, they they got the official confession and then they started a supplementary report. And then later they made another supplementary report and another. So he was very, very open to talking to police and psychiatrists and anybody involved. He was not defensive. He did not try to hide things, except there is one thing we will talk about, but in general, he did not lie to them or try to cover up details. And he was pronounced sane 
So he um, stood trial. I mean, uh, okay. Well, the definition of sane in the criminal justice system is that you understand what you did and that it was wrong. Yeah, it just, just doesn't sound like that word fits, though, you know? Yeah, I know, I know. But he he repeatedly stated that he knew what he was doing was wrong. The whole time, he knew it was wrong. He just could not stop the compulsions. And that's, to me, that's even worse, though. Yeah, knowing that you, what you're doing is wrong and doing it anyway. Every day of the interviews with police, his lawyer would advise him not to talk. <laughs> Gee, I wonder why. Every single day, every single interview, he signed a waiver and said, no, I want to. I want to talk. He also, when they asked how he felt about being arrested, about being caught, he said that he was just glad it was over. That's that's kind of sad. I wonder if he wanted help and just didn't know how to get it. So let's take a little bit of look at his past. He admitted to having obsessive thoughts of violence mixed with sexual feelings starting around the age of 14 to 15. All of his crimes were considered murder with a sexual motive to them. Some people, when they kill, it has absolutely nothing to do that. Uh, usually it's something like you're angry or something like that. Whereas this was mm, romantic, I guess, is a nice way to put it. There's no uh, yeah, nice man. way to put this stuff. <laughs> no, there's no nice way to put really anything. So at age 14 is when he began stalking. There was an attractive athletic jogger that would pass his home regularly. Dahmer rode his bike a few miles from home on the route that he knew the jogger took because he had stalked him. And he hid in the brush with a sawed off baseball bat. His plan was to hit the jogger with the bat to knock him unconscious, only unconscious, and then lie with the motionless body. The jogger didn't come by that day and he just abandoned the plan. After one attempt, he was like, okay, I guess I'll do something else. And that's just kind of creepy how it's just like, it's just a just a task for him. It's like, well, that didn't work. On to something else. Yeah, and to do something like that and not think, wait a second, something's wrong. Even at 14, the, I, would, yeah. I would think that he'd be like, yeah, I, this is a problem. This is a big problem. From 15 years old on is when he really started to realize that he was homosexual and he felt he couldn't share these thoughts and feelings with his family or anyone close to him. He lived in a very religious home during the 70s and 80s. And at the time, especially in a religious home, homosexuality was a massively taboo subject. In yeah. later interviews, they did ask his father about this. And he said that at the time, if he had found out, he would have put his son into a program to quote-unquote fix it that makes me angry that makes me very angry making them think something is terribly wrong we need to fix this and there's nothing wrong with them now in later years 
you know, so this was when he was 15, you know, decades later, his father came to terms with it. His father still loved him very dearly uh, to the point that people judged him horribly through the trial and afterwards. But he said, you know, no matter what, that was his son. That was the little boy that he raised. That was the little boy that he always loved. So I, I do feel... I do feel for his father and his stepmother yeah. and his mother, but it does, you know, it, it is awful uh, to think that, you know, he was not able to be himself at home because it was quote unquote taboo. Yeah. That, that's awful. Yeah. And this actually led to him starting to drink in high and- school. He would take alcohol to school. He would drink before, during, and after. And throughout his entire adulthood, he struggled with alcoholism and heavy drinking. There are actually stories of him. Now, these are secondhand from people who say they watched him do it. So I'm assuming they are correct. But he would drink an entire can of beer as though it was just a single sip, sometimes chugging an entire six-pack at a time. An expensive hobby. And how how did this man not get alcohol poisoning? I mean, he built up a tolerance. It's not like he did that day one. Okay, fair. Drank so much that... His body just got used to it. Yeah, his liver must have hated him so much. His his liver just threw a party whenever he had a a drink of water. Now, let's talk about the victims. I know that, again... This is a very large part of the adaptation and the documentary. Documentaries, because there's many. But I did want to do a rundown in case anybody didn't know any of the details. His first murder was not planned. He did not go out looking for someone. His parents had recently divorced. His father, at the divorce, moved out to a nearby hotel. And then one day, his mom just took his little brother and left. So here he was, 18 years old, completely on his own, unexpectedly. He was still in high school. And on June 8th of 1978, he picked up a hitchhiker named Stephen Hicks and convinced him to come home with him. He just wanted companionship. He just wanted somebody to hang out with and talk and everything they drank they hung out but eventually Stephen wanted to leave and at that point Dahmer lost it hit him over the head with a barbell and then strangled him I'm noticing a pattern with Dahmer here and I know he, you, you already said that like that's he admitted that that's what he was one of his problems was was he had an abandonment issue he did Due to his parents and everything, and that's like it made him angry because it reminded him of his parents splitting and leaving him and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he didn't have a proper way to express that, so unfortunately, he went to murder. So after he realized that Stephen was dead, he dismembered the body, he placed it into trash bags, and he started driving to a ravine in the area. This is the first in a string of incidents where the system failed. 
He swerved over the median line and got pulled over by the cops. The officer even asked what was in the bags in the back seat, and he convinced them that it was just trash. I will give a little bit of freedom to the police in a variety of these circumstances that pop up because he was manipulative. He was convincing, he was suave, he was charming. He could talk strangers into coming back to his house. He could talk police into just letting him go. So they're not completely at fault. He convinced the officer, it's just trash. He also told them his parents just got divorced. He does a lot of like cleaning and yard work to sort of distract himself and that's why he had all these big bags of trash he was taking them to the landfill he you know he convinced them legitimately so the officer you know knowing he was just a kid who was going through a divorce gave him a warning and let him go and that's that's the sad thing is like as a police officer or just a person in general you want to give these people the benefit of the doubt and be like oh they're going through a rough time i'll cut them some slack i'll give them a break now but like sometimes it's like it's not all the way all all the time true what they're saying yeah that one in a million yeah you 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 try to help people and be nice and and give them a break but like not everyone is actually telling the truth yeah it's really sad but he turned the car around and he went home so he found a galvanized pipe on the property and he stuffed the bags with the body parts in there and then disposed of the victim's personal items in the river along with the knife that he had used to dismember the body. Once it happened this first time, it was a constant part of his thinking from there. One month later, in August of 78, his father and his future stepmother, Sherry, visited to check on him. They just wanted to visit, see how he was doing, how's it been. They had no idea that his mother had left and that he had been all on his own for months. They said that there wasn't much food in the fridge, the house was a mess, and they also said that he had a dead look in his eyes. He looked extremely sad, he was wandering aimlessly, so out of concern, they moved back in. His father, Lionel, got him into Ohio State and even paid tuition in an attempt to turn his life around. He attended college for three months. Due to heavy drinking and a whopping GPA of 0.45, he flunked out of college. And that's when his father made him enlist in the army and he trained as a combat medic. He now had official medical training He knew how to identify organs. He knew how to navigate the internal systems of the body. He also learned about various drugs and what they did and how to use them. But again... That's going to be some useful information for him. uh, Again, his drinking became too much and he was discharged from the army. When he returned home, when he returned to the family home, because he did live in Florida for a bit after the army. The bags with Hick's body were still in the pipe. He retrieved them, 
smash them with a hammer and then spread the remains through a wooded area back behind the house so that they would always be there. All right, then. In the summer of 1982, he moved in with his grandmother and he called her the perfect grandma. She was loving and caring and he even made an effort to change for her. He quit drinking for a while. They would go to church and he even tried to stifle his sexuality for her. So to help try to get him through this and maybe maybe change somehow, he tried to create surrogates for these darkening thoughts. One was depicted in the amputation where he stole a mannequin from a department store. His grandmother did find it. After lying to her about how he got it, he then worried that you know she would find out exactly what he had done to it. He took it down to the basement, got a sledgehammer, smashed it to pieces, and then threw it away. Between being in the army, being in college, moving in with his grandmother, the attempts to change, and the state of his life, he did stop killing from 1978 with the first victim to 1987. In those nine years, he told police he just had no physical opportunity to kill. And that's why he didn't. In November of 87, Dahmer met Stephen Toomey, and the two got a room at the Ambassador Motor Hotel. Dahmer just wanted to spend the night together. He had done this with a few other men, and he followed his usual routine of lacing a drink with sleeping pills. But then Dahmer blacked out. And he then woke up covered in bruises and found Stephen was dead. He had no memory of it, but he knew he had to dispose of the body. He went to a nearby mall, and according to the reports, it was from Woolworth. I don't know if that matters, but he bought a large suitcase that he could move the body with. And walking into a hotel with a suitcase isn't suspicious, and neither is walking out of one. So he stuffed the body into this suitcase and got a taxi. He even had the driver assist him with getting the suitcase into the trunk. And the cabbie made a joke that it was so heavy, you must have a dead body in there. That right there is like a, a, a movie scene, that by itself. Because you know, it, you always see that scene in a movie where it's like, a bag full of money and they're like what you got in here a million dollars boy you couldn't be any more right so Dahmer took the body to his grandmother's house he dismembered it and he placed it in plastic garbage bags which he took out to the trash and just threw them away the monster was now awake and he would not stop from this point on he started developing his unique rituals and M.O when he drugged, raped, and strangled 14-year-old James Doxtater, again, dismembering the body. And then a year later, he did the same thing to 25-year-old Richard Guerrero. These, he completely disposed of the body. In September of 1988, he is still living with his grandmother at the time, and he was convicted of second-degree sexual assault on a 13-year-old named Somsak Synthesomphone. I apologize if I ruined that name. He was convicted in January of 1989 
but sentencing was delayed until May. During that time, he underwent a psychiatric evaluation. And during this time, between his arrest and his sentencing, well, his between his arrest, his conviction, and his sentencing, he killed Anthony Sears in his quote-unquote usual manner. Anthony was an aspiring model, and due to his beauty, Dahmer decided to preserve his head and genitals in acetone and store them in a wooden box. He had actually called a nearby hardware store and asked what would be the best thing to use to preserve a rabbit, and then he stored them in a wooden box. This box he kept in his room at his grandfather's house. Not grandfather's, grandmother's house. One day, his father found out about it and told him to open it, but Dahmer said that he lost the key. And Lionel said, all right, we'll open it tomorrow. And they never did. That was the closest he got to his family knowing. On May 23rd, 1989, he was sentenced to one year of jail with work release for the crime against Somsack. The psychiatrist who interviewed him highly disagreed with this sentence, acknowledging that he was a troubled man and that the justice system would see him again if he was not detained and treated. But the judge was feeling nice, wanted to give him a second chance in life. Once he was sentenced, he took the box, the box, from his grandmother's house because he did not want to risk it being found and he stored it in his work locker at the Ambrosia Chocolate Factory. I no longer want to eat chocolate. I'm sorry. That's a lie. I still want to eat chocolate. In May of 1990, he moved out of his grandmother's house into the famous apartment 213. Being on his own, he could no longer control himself. The ritual of drugging strangling and dismembering became addictive. The objective was to find the best looking, most attractive men he could find. He didn't care about sexual preference. He didn't care about race. He didn't care about personality, religion, economic status, nothing. All he cared about was physical beauty. In his mind, he would dehumanize them to make it easier to kill them. They weren't a person anymore to him. They were just an object of pleasure. One week after he moved into the apartment, he killed his sixth victim, 32-year-old Raymond Smith. The next day, he went out and purchased a Polaroid camera, which soon became part of his sick methods. He kept photographs as a way to remember their physical beauty. They were just another trophy on top of everything else. One month later, he drugged and strangled 27-year-old Edward Smith. Dahmer admitted to police that he felt rotten about this murder because he was unable to retain any of the body parts. So he boiled the skull to remove flesh, but then when he tried to bake it in the oven to help preserve it, it exploded into a million pieces of dust. Imagine what that sounded like, because he did this in an apartment. So think, just keep in mind, like you just you know chilling in, in your apartment, you know watching TV, doing whatever. Suddenly you hear something explode. I don't know what a skull sounds like when it explodes due to heat, but I mean I'm sure it's not quiet. 
it's probably similar to stuff exploding in the microwave, but hard. So like, there would be like, like a shrapnel. I'm sure that his neighbors heard that. Yeah, they they probably did. I hope they didn't ask. Well, he was very convincing. I know a few times they his neighbors did complain to the landlord about the smell, and the landlord would go over there and be like, hey, is everything okay? And that's when the rotten meat would come up, the dead tropical fish. So he always had an excuse. He was always charming. He was always very convincing and manipulative. It's another thing, too. I can't imagine being his neighbor and smelling that all the time. I would be moving. But I will say it was a very affordable apartment. So some people might not have had the luxury of just moving out. I believe I saw that it only cost $300 a month for an apartment. And if you have a family and things like that, I know it was the 90s. Well, the late 80s and the 90s, so prices were lower than they are now. But still, $300 is pretty cheap. Remember, kids, if you get a really cheap apartment like that, yeah, not only is it probably going to be a little rundown, need a little, little work, um, but you may be, you know, sharing an apartment building with a serial killer who's, like, currently baking bones in his oven and dissolving bodies in plastic barrels. Less than three months later he lured 22-year-old Ernest Miller to his apartment. Instead of strangulation, due to Ernest's musculature stature, he was a very large, very strong man, Dahmer used a large hunting knife with a six-inch blade to sever the carotid artery by stabbing him in the neck. He did preserve and keep Ernest's skull, as well as wrapping and refrigerating his heart biceps and portions of flesh from the legs for later consumption. Three weeks later, he enticed 22-year-old David Thomas to his apartment. He took some photos and then drugged the man. This time, he did not feel attracted to him. He just, he didn't want to have sex with him. He did not want to spend the night with him. But he was afraid to wake him up and have him discover that he was drugged. So yeah. he strangled and dismembered the body, but kept nothing. Kept no photos. Oh, wait, he did keep the photos, which led to later identification of the victim. But he kept no body parts, no flesh, no bone. Then for five months, Dahmer actually did not kill again. But he did make multiple unsuccessful attempts to persuade possible victims to his apartment. So it wasn't that he wasn't trying, he just was not able to pick anybody up, basically. In February of 1991, Dahmer drugged 17-year-old Curtis Strotter. This time, he handcuffed Curtis's hands behind his back and then strangled him with a leather strap instead of his hands. Many of the victims, he had just used his hands, but some of the stronger ones, aside from Ernest, who was stabbed, he would use a strap that he bought specifically for this purpose. On April 7th of 91, he starts some more experiments. He lured 19-year-old Errol Lindsay to his apartment. But this time, after he drugged him, he attempted to create a living zombie 
by drilling a hole in his skull while he was unconscious and injecting muriatic acid straight into the brain. According to Dahmer, Errol awoke during the procedure saying, I have a headache, what time is it? At uh, this point, buddy, buddy, a headache is the least of your worries. Well, yes. At this point, Dahmer drugged him again and then strangled him. I'm not sure why, and I couldn't find that, because, I mean, maybe he wasn't a zombie, but he was still alive. Yeah, there, there's that. Oh, it gets worse, Kraken. Of course it does. This victim, after, obviously, he was deceased, he completely skinned the body with a small paring knife, carefully leaving all cartilage, ligaments, and flesh intact as he did so. Lovely. On May 24th, he attempted to create another zombie with 34-year-old aspiring model Tony Hughes. Tony was deaf and mute, so he always carried a little notepad around with him so that if he had trouble communicating with someone, he could write it down. But this time, Dahmer's experiment was immediately fatal. He was able to drill into, uh, into the skull but as soon as the acid hit the brain, he passed away. I, I, I get the whole fascination to like, and let me finish here. I get the whole, his whole fascination of like, I wonder what would happen if you did this. Like, you have to admit, I think everyone has had a thought like that. Like, I wonder what would happen if like this happened or this happened or something like that, you know, just what like- What would happen if I put Mentos and Coke? I wonder what would happen. It's, it's like that, but worse. I think it was it you that I was messaging on Discord talking about this, that if he had used his scientific curiosity for good, if he had focused in school and gone into the scientific field, there is a possibility he could have done amazing things. He could have done research. He could have found different things that you can do with the human body, with biology, with science. But instead, he decided to do this. Yeah, because that kind of like scientific curiosity can be used for good things or bad things. He exactly. used it for bad things. Two days later, convinced Conorak to come to his apartment with the promise of money, not even realizing that his brother Somsack was the 13-year-old was convicted of molesting. Once he drugged Conorak, he led him to the bedroom where Tony's body was still lying on the floor. Once Conorak was unconscious, Dahmer drilled a single hole in his head and injected the acid and water mixture into the frontal lobe. A few hours later, Dahmer left Conorak unconscious in the apartment so he could go buy more beer. When he arrived back at the Oxford Apartments in the early hours of May 27th, Conorak was outside on the street corner, completely naked, with three local women hysteric around him. They said that they had called 911, but when the police arrived, and again, this is where that charming, charismatic manipulation comes in. 
but Dahmer convinced them that Conorak was his 19-year-old boyfriend who just had too much to drink. Additionally, at the time, because some people blamed it on homophobia, the police department had been given, I guess a mandate is the right word, to be polite and understanding of the homosexual community because there was a very growing gay community in Milwaukee at the time. And mix them being told, hey, don't push the issue too far uh, unless there's a reason. You know, obviously don't let someone just commit murder, but also don't go out there and bully, harass, etc. this entire community. So between that and his manipulation, they believed him and they let him go. So I did hear that the two officers were fired after this incident, but later reinstated. Once the police left, Dahmer injected more acid, which proved fatal. He then took the next day off of work to devote the time to dismembering the bodies of Conorak and Tony. At this point, Dahmer lost his job. Mm-hmm. And he knew that once his monetary situation ran out, he'd have to leave the apartment. So now he needed to speed the process up. And he purchased the 57 gallon drum, which he filled with a chemical mixture that helped to remove flesh from bone. On June 30th, Dahmer traveled to Chicago for the Gay Pride Parade and convinced 20-year-old Matt Turner to participate in a quote-unquote professional photo shoot back at his apartment. Once again, drugged, strangled, dismembered, kept his head and internal organs in separate bags in the freezer and put the rest of the body in the drum with Tony and Conorak. On July 5th, Dahmer persuaded 23-year-old Jeremy Weinberger to the apartment with the promise of spending a weekend together. When Jeremiah wanted to leave on just the second day, Dahmer was like, here, one last drink. Of course it was drugged. He did drill a hole in his skull and this time poured boiling water onto the frontal cortex, trying again to create a living zombie, but it put Jeremiah in a coma. And with his experiment now failed, Dahmer strangled him. He placed the head into storage and the rest of the body in the 57-gallon drum. On July 15th, Dahmer lured 24-year-old Oliver Lacey, a bodybuilding enthusiast, to his apartment with the promise of money. He was drugged and strangled with the leather strap. Dahmer placed his head and his heart in the refrigerator, and he kept the entire body in the freezer. He had one of those large chest freezers because he wanted to save the entire skeleton for an altar that he was planning to start building. He even, during one of the interviews with his lawyer, he sketched his plan for the altar and how he was going to use the various bones and skulls in this grand vision he had. And it was going Um, to be a way for him to be with them always, to remember them, to honor them. 
So this altar was just going to be like a shrine, basically. It was. He actually, in one of the interviews, called it a memorial. There was one more victim before the evening of Tracy Edwards. And that was July 19th when Dahmer baited 25-year-old Joseph Bradhoff with the promise of money. Joseph was a father of three, and he was looking for work, so the amount of money was extremely enticing. Again, Dahmer drugged, strangled him with the leather strap, placed his head in the freezer, and put the pieces of the body in the drum. And then this brings us back to July 23rd, when Tracy Edwards flagged police down. So the one thing that many people talk about was not just the fact that he was a serial killer. They talk about the fact that he was also a cannibal. Yep, because, you know, experimenting with battery acid and boiling water isn't enough. We gotta go a little bit further, right? When he was originally detained by police, Dahmer very firmly stated he did one time ingest the flesh of the bicep of a single victim, the man he met at 27th in Wisconsin, Ernest Miller. But later he said he, the only bicep that he ever ate was Oliver Lacey. And then in August of 91, he revealed that he had eaten the heart of Raymond Smith, the thigh and bicep of Ernest Miller, and the bicep of Oliver Lacey. He claimed that this was a way he tried to keep them with him always, and he only ate the victims he really, really liked. The two hearts and bicep muscles in the freezer were being saved for this as well. He also very openly told the police how he prepared and cooked the meat as though he was reading a recipe in a cookbook. When police asked why he initially withheld this information, he stated, and I quote, he did not want to talk about it because it was not very, very appealing and he did not want them to think less of him. The conviction, he did plead guilty, which immediately negated the death penalty. Obviously what he had done in a state with the death penalty, he would have been eligible. He was, however, given 15 consecutive life sentences, one for each of the 15 murders they could prove. There were two others, but they ha did not have the evidence. All they had was the confession, and that was not enough to go with the conviction. But all these sentences combined equaled a 999-year sentence. So next, I wanted to talk a little bit about Fact versus Fiction of the Monster series, which is the adaptation that we talked about. There were a few inaccuracies we had talked about, but then there were a couple others that I didn't really know where to fit in. First one, Ronald Flowers was one of the victims that he had taken back to his grandmother's house. He survived. In real life, she was not involved. She never knew that this young man was in her house. He woke up the next morning in the hospital from a drug overdose, but he was also covered in abrasions and he did not know how he got them or how he got to the hospital. So Dahmer did beat the crap out of him, but did not kill him. 
So another inaccuracy is the Dean Vaughn killing. Dean Vaughn was another tenant of the Oxford Apartments at the same time. He was found strangled in his apartment in 1991. Dahmer was questioned before his arrest because he was another tenant of the building. And then after his arrest saying, did you do this? And he denied knowing him. There was no evidence found. And he was like, I've told you about 17 murders. You really think I'm not going to tell you about this one? Also, he was simply strangled and left there, which is not part of Dahmer's MO. Unfortunately, that murder is still unsolved. Well, I mean, with everything with, with that one, though, I mean, it's most likely it was just as bad as it is, just a single murder and not a serial yeah. killing. It was probably a crime of passion or a burglary gone wrong or something of that sort. I would say one of the bigger changes that they made is Glenda Cleveland. So she is a very large character in this show. She, in the show, is his next door neighbor. She literally lives on the other side of the wall from him. She hears the tools. She smells the smells. But in real life, she didn't even live in the same building. She lived across the street. The character in the show is actually an amalgam of Cleveland and a woman named Pamela Bass who lived across the hall from Dahmer. Cleveland did repeatedly call the police after the incident with Conorak. They had seen him wandering in the street out of the window, so she sent her daughter and her niece. But she actually was not down on the street. When the police came, she did not talk talk to the police. But afterwards, she kept calling, saying, what happened to him? And they said, oh, it was just a relationship thing. He was drunk. His boyfriend took him back inside. And she's like how old was he? And they're like, oh, he's 19. Don't worry about it. She's like, there's no way that kid was 19. The last fact from fiction is that he wore his glasses at the trial. He did, in fact, need prescription glasses. But through a lot of the trial, he did not wear them for one very specific reason. He did not want to look the jury or the victim's families in the face. The last thing I have to go over are interesting facts. Usually when you're doing something like this, it's fun facts. These are not fun facts. These These are anything but fun facts. facts. Yeah. So let's talk about some unfun facts. He always did the dismemberment naked, but a lot of people would be like, that's because it was a sexually driven crime, etc. He said it was absolutely was not. It was more of a necessity because it is a very messy thing to do. And it was far easier to just hop in the shower and rinse himself off. That's the first thing I would have thought about was like, it is messy. While in prison, he received a ton of fan mail. Some was women and men reaching out with some sort of odd attractiveness to him. Others were Christians reaching out to talk about religion and theology. In prison, he was converted to born-again Christian 
I guess not converted because he was Christian, but he growing up, he was raised Protestant. He then, while he did his crimes, he classified himself as an atheist. And then once in prison, he became a born again Christian. In that fan mail, he got over $12,000 in donations. Bruh. Mm-hmm. 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 People it, just like, sent him money. Why? I, I, I honestly don't, don't know. I can't imagine writing a fan letter to a serial killer, let alone sending them money. So speaking of the born again Christian aspect of things, he was baptized while in prison on the same day that John Wayne Gacy was executed. To make it weirder, there was an eclipse that day. All right, then. That happened, and there was an eclipse. John Wayne Gacy got executed. Probably several other things happened that day as well. You just have to look into it. November 28th, 1994, is when he was killed in prison by a fellow inmate. And what's interesting is that it was a very similar manner to which he killed his first victim. He was on a work detail in the gym, and this man took the bar from like a, a bar, uh, ooh, the weightlifting bar, like you know where you put the big weights on each yeah, side. Yeah, yeah, the, like the, the that long bar for like yeah. The, yeah, the bench presses. So it was it was twenty inch long metal bar and beat him to death with it. And apparently Dahmer did not make a single sound during the attack. That's the part that's creepy to me. Like you think the initial strike, he would have at least like grunted or something, but like, no, it's just like, all right, well, this is happening. Two more unfun facts. After he cleaned the skulls, he would spray paint them with a fake granite finish paint so that if somebody found them, they wouldn't think they were real. The final fact. So after everything that happened, we talked about the other tenants in the building. They met, they all got together and they talked about it and they agreed that that place should not remain standing. Within 15 months of his arrest, all of them had moved out and the building was completely leveled. But I'm not quite sure. I think I accidentally removed it from my show notes here. But one thing that I did want to point out that I just found interesting. This isn't really related to the crimes. The yellow contacts from the adaptation. He actually bought a pair of yellow contacts and would wear them out. He, All right, then. He related to the Emperor from Star Wars and the Gemini Killer from The Exorcist 3. And both of them have yellow eyes. So he found yellow contacts at like a Halloween shop. And when he would go out and when he would do these things, he would in fact wear them. And The Exorcist 3 was part of his ritual. But that is the very long story of Jeffrey Dahmer. Horrifying. Thanks. You're welcome. As always, make sure to check out our website for all of the show notes, sources, and more information at thesquonkandthehag.com.
And we would also love and appreciate your support by either leaving a review on iTunes or through small monthly donations using the viewer support link in the description. And if you don't subscribe, make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast network to get notified of new episodes every Thursday. All right, Cracko, you ready? Okay, bye.